You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another edition of the Domecast, our look at North Carolina government and politics. We thank you for stopping by. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We've got a great show for you today. Rob Christensen of the NNO and Craig Jarvis will take on some political news. And we'll hear later uh, with the latest on the budget, some fast-moving developments over the week, and we'll try to catch you up to speed on that. And, of course, our headliners of the week. Let's jump right into it. Rob Christensen, uh, there's there's starting to be some news on the Senate race. This would be the U.S. Senate race. Richard Burr, of course, the incumbent. The Democrats have uh, you know hadn't, haven't really coalesced around a candidate, but... That picture is starting to become a little clearer. Tell us, uh, tell us what, what what what's going on out there. Well, first of all, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee is the, is is the key player because these are national races, and so the national groups, uh, national parties are used are the ones that are actually going out and recruiting these candidates. Now they've been uh, knocking on doors and getting a lot of no's. Kay Hagan said no. You know, Dan Blue said no. Uh, uh, Transportation Secretary Fox said no. Uh, Janet Cow, the uh, state treasury treasurer, said no. Uh, but now it looks like there's in the last couple of weeks they're zeroing in on t- two people in particular, and that is former Congressman Heath Shuler from who's up from Waynesville. He uh, served three terms in Congress and then decided not to run again, partly because he was thrown into a, a district that was made much more Republican by the legislature. He is, and then Deborah Ross, who is a uh, Democratic, former state Democratic legislature from here in Raleigh, uh, who who, uh, who resigned uh, about two years ago from the Demo- from the legislature to seek other uh, to uh, other employment. So, uh, and, and the Senatorial Committee has actually been knocking on both those doors, and it looks like they are poised to enter the race. Neither one is announced, but both of them are, are looking at it. Now, it's, if, that, if, they, if they in fact do enter the race, and it looks like that they might, it, it is really an interesting dynamic because they are two very different kinds of candidates. So Heath Shuler, it's, it's really, if you look at it, it's, uh, it's, if you look at two different Democratic strategies— Heath Shuler is the traditional Democratic strategy. That is, you go for somebody in the center, somebody who can appeal to swing voters to moderates. And he is, uh, he is Heath Shuler is a is a is a kind of a kind of a glamour candidate. He's a former Heisman Trophy runner-up, a former uh, at the University of Tennessee quarterback, uh, lots of uh, charisma. He is uh, now working at Duke Power as their lobbyist. He was a Redskins quarterback, not a very successful one, I might add. But um, uh, and uh, and so he he brings. But he's also in order to get elected up in a very conservative district up in the mountains, he is a very very conservative. So he was very pro gun. He was anti-abortion. He voted against Obamacare, and that helped to get him elected in, in a very among a lot of the small towns, rural areas of Western North Carolina. But that's problematic in a Democratic primary where a lot of voters are, are very liberal. So he might very. Uh, so the argument for Heath Shuler is he might do very well in a general election, pulling in a lot of those swing voters. But are there many swing voters left? Because we're in a very polarized environment. People are very strongly Democratic, very strongly Republican. And there you get to Deborah Ross. Deborah Ross is a very highly articulate, very intelligent, uh, very driven uh, 
a, a lawyer here here in Raleigh and former uh, ACLU, very ACL lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. She is the kind of candidate who's likely to drive the base. That you know the 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 liberal Democratic voters, the people who really vote in primaries. And she's uh, she has gender go, gender going for her. generally women do better in these primary primaries than than men, and she's from a major metropolitan area, and so uh, there she's likely to be better better known, and so it's that has she, it's very important that where you're from in a lot of these primaries. So in a lot of ways, she might very well be a stronger. Uh, she's not very well known across the state right now, but she might be a very much more of a stronger primary candidate. So. Uh, there, there. The question is: Do you do you get a candidate who will drive the base out? So, are these base elections, or, are they, or do you reach out to the middle? So, if in fact we get these this kind of uh, Ross Schuler primary uh, uh, shaping up, there you, you get into argument: who, who works best for the Democrats? A a centrist, even conservative Democrat who reaches can reach out to the middle, or somebody who can really rally the Democratic base. Well, that will be uh, interesting to watch. Does uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and her campaign do they, you know, weigh in in this and try to try to shape who who uh, ends up running, or is this really a Chuck Schumer uh, uh, operation at this point? Well, you know, it, it it is it is a national. These are really our national groups. So, for example, Richard Burr, who, who was he was recruited for the Senate race by Karl Rove and the White House. And uh, back when he ran in 2004, because they were looking to hold on to the Senate. So these really, these even though this is a North Carolina race, and this is true in other states as well, they're really chess pieces on the board by national players. So, you know, like in the last race, for example, which Tom Tillis beat Kay Hagan, there was more than $100 million spent. These, this is big money, big national players. And so the, the, a lot of these, the, uh, these pieces are being maneuvered around by these big national camp campaigns by these big independent groups and so forth and so uh, and 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 if they don't get behind a candidate they don't have much of a chance because we're talking about probably 80 to 100 million dollars being spent the money the money just doesn't flow right Uh, yeah uh let me ask you rob you know we're into summer now almost labor day uh, when does this really have to be decided uh when 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 do when do these candidates if they are going to run when, when does the uh, clock really start ticking for them? Well, I think they probably have to make a decision by uh, by the next couple of weeks by Labor Day because there's a lot of money to be raised. There's a, you almost have to if you're talking about a major Senate race, you have, it's almost like setting up a corporation. You have to uh, you have to set up a campaign operation. You have to go out and raise money. You have to go out and shake the money tree in all the major cities and Washington, and and you have to go out to all the interest groups and so forth. And so. And particularly if you're not particularly well known, for example, like a Deborah Ross, and so she has to, she would have to connect up with all women's groups all across the country and so forth. So she, if you're going to do it, you need to jump in the water pretty quick. Very good. So we'll be watching that for developments. Craig Jarvis, uh, Craig of the News and Observer, that wasn't the only uh, race that seemed to attract some attention uh, this week. Um, tell us about uh, Dan Forrest. Well, yeah, we thought the stage was set uh, from so far this year but with, with a rematch between Forrest and uh, Linda Coleman, former Wake County Commissioner, former legislator who narrowly lost last time to Forrest. <clears throat> but all of a sudden, uh, this week, we had more activity. A woman uh, named Holly Jones from the Buncombe County uh, Board of Commissioners, uh, about a decade of political experience up there, 
uh, announced that she's going to run. Uh, she sort of is running on the issue of the uh, local autonomy from the state from the state uh, legislature uh, on all on all those issues, which especially has impacted the Asheville area on a number of fronts. A uh, couple other names have popped up: Steve Rao, a Morrisville uh, City Council member, Town Council member, um, uh, indicated that he uh, or he sent up more of a trial balloon. And uh, somebody we didn't mention in the uh, in the uh, Democratic primary, uh, uh, Chris Ray, Spring Lake uh, 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 council uh, mayor of Spring Lake. In fact, the website down there says that it's, he's the hardest working mayor in America. So I guess he has ambitions. <laughs> Earlier this year, he sort of floated a. Uh, a uh, lieutenant governor balloon, but then this week said uh, he'd be interested in the Senate, in the Senate seat as well. So, so we'll see. And uh, Dwayne Hall has has Dwayne mentioned Hall. wanting to get in on that uh, Burr race, right? right? And yep. he says he's talked to the CSS people too. Uh, not mm. as high profile at all as a, as the other candidates, but perhaps he's interested in getting the experience. But uh, uh, we'll see. Coleman, you know, on one one on the one hand, she almost won last time and maybe could do it this time on the other hand she didn't win last time and maybe can't do it so that's why people are lining up in that race i think and you have to say dan forrest uh he has maintained a profile for a lieutenant governor he does get around uh you hear him a lot on uh, especially uh, radio talk radio um and, and uh, has 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 maintained some visibility uh from that position yeah, no, absolutely. He's, uh, I'd say, far more than his predecessor, Walter Dalton. He just, from the beginning, has been out in front of every uh, TV camera and microphone he can find and has been very outspoken on a number of of uh, very conservative issues. And he's, uh, it's clear he, he doesn't want to disappear into the background, which, uh, which the lieutenant governor can often be. Well, very good. So that's a little bit on politics. Let's take a break, and we'll talk about the other big news of the week, the budget. Uh, we'll be back in a second. Have you checked out the newly designed News & Observer this week? You'll see changes that make all of our products more visually appealing while giving you in-depth coverage and new ways of storytelling. Visit new.newsobserver.com to learn more about the new ways for your news day. As a listener to the Domecast, we have a special offer for you. You can receive the News & Observer Digital Edition for only 99 cents for four weeks. This includes unlimited access to NewsObserver.com, mobile, iPad apps, and the print replica e-edition. Just head over to NewsObserver.com, click subscribe at the top of the page, and enter the promo code DOMECAST to receive this special offer. And welcome back to the Domecast. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer here with Ben Brown of The Insider and Colin Campbell of the News and Observer. We wanted to talk uh, briefly about the budget, the big story uh, moving in the legislature. We're getting away from politics and back to government and everything at a standstill, uh, really, as the focus turns to the budget. Ben Brown, uh, bring us up to speed uh, here, end of the week. Uh, the 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 shades of a deal, I guess, emerging mm -hmm. in the in the fog and the clouds, so to speak. Uh, what you know, where 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 do we stand? So what we had heard by Thursday afternoon, uh, actually later in the day on Thursday, was that the House and Senate were really close. Actually, the 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 quote was very close from uh, Tim Moore on them reaching a budget. There's a number out there, and it looks like they're really trying to get to it, uh, trying to meet. And more emphasize, you know, uh, even though there's there's a there, there's a kind of a, a public 
crush on the legislature right now to you know just get it done and 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 move on because school's starting and everything uh, he's saying we're, we're not just sitting around we're not just you know wasting time we're, we are actually meeting late into the night and, and you know getting up really early in the morning to resume these things so um they say they it's still the mantra of trying to get a document that's right not a document that's rushed and has some some shortcomings so um, it's going to be a no vote session on Monday, but uh, that day they are going to try to. I, I think just this coming week is going to be the the kind of the kickoff uh, to the finish line. So I'm, I know I'm mixing metaphors there, mixing uh, sports metaphors, but that's kind of the tone right now. Okay, very good, Colin Campbell. Uh, teachers and teacher assistants a big part of uh, what is a sticking point at this point. Uh, you, do you have any sense of? Uh, what the, I guess uh, outline for us what some of the the major things to be resolved are once they've settled on a number. Well, the teaching assistance uh, aspect of it is going to be the big one. Um, you know, obviously, the Senate budget calls for cutting thousands of teacher assistants. The idea being, you could save that money, uh, put it into classroom teachers, reduce class sizes in elementary schools. The House wants to keep the uh, number of teacher assistants pretty much identical the way it was last school year, and the House is pretty firm on that. Uh, every time we ask one of the budget writers in the House if that's negotiable for them, the answer is no. So, uh, my guess is we, what we may see is some sort of flexibility around arrangement where the school districts ultimately get to decide, uh, you know, do they keep teacher assistance or do they instead try to lower class sizes? Uh, so that's a big issue. Uh, state employee salaries still yet to be resolved. Uh, House calls for a 2% across the board raise. Senate and I think the governor as well were more interested in a more of a targeted uh, system of raises that would really hit people who are in hard to fill or hard to retain positions rather than just giving everybody more money. Uh, so those are, are some of the, the big ones. Um, and of course, the big challenge now is uh, schools start in most counties within the next week or so. And with the teacher assistant thing particularly unresolved, uh, that means a lot of school districts are they're either going to go ahead and hire teacher assistants and they're just going to hope for the best and hope that the Senate loses this battle so that uh, they will have state money to pay the teacher assistants and not have to dip into their own local funding. Um, and then some school districts are trying to hedge their bets. And so they're telling the teacher assistants, we'll hire you at some point in the school year when the budget's resolved, but we're going to open the schools without having uh, the same number of teacher assistants we had last year. And so uh, I think uh, one of the school administrators I talked to last week said they were flying by the seat of their pants in terms of uh, budgeting and finances with all this unresolved at the state level. And of course, Democrats uh, really are, are starting to drive on that issue. Um, there was some talk toward the end of the week of a compromise a block grant type uh, scenario where you know the legislature would set aside money, go to the schools, let them decide how to spend it. Uh, so you know it is a, a an influx um, issue. Now, Colin, when they settle the budget, uh, they don't all go home. There are some remaining issues. Uh, bond referendum. Uh, yeah, bond referendum. We've got uh, Medicaid reform, and we've got economic development and the sales tax distribution component mm -hmm. of that. So that's a lot of big issues. Uh, I think Speaker Tim Moore said, uh, even if we get the budget resolved in the next week or two, we may still be here through mid to late September uh, trying to get agreements on all of those, because all those are bills that will have to go into some sort of conference committee uh, between the House and the Senate, uh, and we'll, we'll probably get um, reworked before uh, they get past both chambers into the governor's desk. So all of this will bear uh, watching it. it. There is a feeling now, though, uh, in, in Raleigh that decisions are at hand. 
and so we'll be of course watching closely let's take a uh, break and we'll be back with our headliners of the week So you smash your thumb with a hammer. Ouch! You race to the hospital. And they ask, what medications are you taking? Thankfully, in your wallet is a list with your medications on it. Wife went to safemedication.com, downloaded the free template, and wow, that pink pill has a real name. To create your own medication list, visit safemedication.com or talk with your hospital pharmacist. Brought to you by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. And welcome back to the Domecast, our weekly look at all things in politics and government in North Carolina. I'm Andy Curlis. We're into a segment we call Headliners of the Week. Each of our panelists will nominate someone or something. We've had sharks and uh, other such things in the past. And they'll argue 45 seconds trying to beat the bell. They have 45 seconds argue why they are the Headliner of the Week. And we'll have some fun and pick some pick pick something or someone out of this. Let's get right into it. And Colin Campbell, Colin Campbell, tell us who is your headliner of the week. Well, I'm going with Senator Brent Jackson. He's a Republican from Sampson County, and he was uh, in the news this week for sponsoring the Tabor Bill, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. It's that constitutional amendment that would uh, limit government spending to match uh, inflation and population growth rates, as well as limit the personal income tax rate to 5%. It would go before voters next November if it's passed. Uh, he got it passed the Senate with the necessary uh, majority of senators voting for it, but uh, got a little emotional about it. You don't normally see legislators get uh, emotional about their bills, but he got choked up about the fact that the uh, bill did not get bipartisan support. It was pretty much a party-line deal, which is enough to get it passed. Uh, and since we don't normally see that, I figured that was made him worth headliner of the week. Brent Jackson, a watermelon yeah, watermelon farmer, uh, got a big, yeah. big operation down in Sampson County. Yeah, and of course that issue did clear the Senate uh, and head over to the House. Yeah, so it's passed the Senate now, now it's got to go to the House, and the Republicans over there are a little more lukewarm on it. They say they're interested in the idea, but they don't know if they really have time to do it this session on top of the budget and economic development and everything else that's still on the to-do list. So Brent Jackson, a key budget writer in the hopper. Let's go now to Craig Jarvis. Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Tell us, who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick uh, Todd Poole, the executive director of the uh, North Carolina Republican Party. He uh, announced he's resigning uh, in a little bit, a couple weeks, uh, to pursue undisclosed opportunities. Uh, but Todd, because they they're, they're, the party's feeling pretty good about itself, they've raised a bunch of money. Actually, if you count the federal committee along with the state committee, they outraised the Democrats by about $1.2 million to $1 million. They're feeling good about that. They just came off a Tillis victory last year. They're feeling very aggressive, very feisty, uh, already lobbying lots of grenades at, uh, at uh, Roy Cooper, uh, who will challenge McCrory. Uh, for governor next year, and uh, there just seems to be a lot of momentum, and partly thanks to Poole. Oh, I was just reaching for the bill. Sorry, that was good. Uh, so Todd Todd Poole, uh, uh, coming soon to another campaign near you. We'll we'll watch and see for that. Uh, let's go now to Taylor Knopf of the News and Observer. Taylor, welcome to the Domecast. Thank you. 
and tell us who is your headliner of the week. So I'm going to nominate the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina. Um, this week, they and a number of other prisoner and civil rights advocates are asked the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate solitary confinement practices in North Carolina's prisons. Um, while the prisons have admitted they have a lot of issues in terms of keeping mentally ill patients in solitary confinement, they're slowed to act. And so this group is trying to light the fire and get some change happening there. So I think nominate them. ACLU, that was a, a big story early in the week, and of course, uh, Taylor, you are reporting on that, and I think there will be some more uh, coverage of that issue, an important issue, and of course, the prison system was acknowledging, look, there are some uh, issues here that we need to deal with, and um, so there will be some, some continuing coverage of that. ACLU in the hopper. Rob Christensen, Rob Christensen of the News and Observer, tell us who is your headliner of the week? I nominate the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it turns out that he gave uh, a version of his famous I Have a Dream speech uh, well before uh, he did it in Washington, D.C. He did it in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And uh, it's news this week because they, did, they discovered a recording of his, a long-lost recording of his speech that he gave and is now being uh, introduced to the public. Little known fact is that uh, Martin Luther King was scheduled to actually campaign in North Carolina in uh, 1968, uh, but canceled last minute to appear with the sanitation workers in Memphis where he was assassinated. He was supposed to be campaigning in eastern North Carolina. Is that right? That is Interesting. Uh, were you going to cover that visit? No, I wasn't, oh. Andy, but thank you for sharing that. <laughs> no, I got you. So Martin Luther King in as a nominee for headliner of the week and let's go now to ben brown of the insider ben brown welcome uh who is your headliner of the week i'll go with uh, representative marilyn avila who had one of the more provocative quotes on the house floor during the uh, debate over whether to increase job search requirements for people on unemployment uh, five contacts a week is proposed and the opponents were saying it's burdensome it'll strain people who don't have easy access to the internet or to transportation. They said it'll create a situation of people applying for jobs that aren't right for them just to meet that quota. And Avila fires back and says, if it's an undue burden to make five job contacts a week, then how is it not a burden to get to work five days a week? And that sort of got an ooh up in the gallery, and that bill passed on second reading shortly after. It did. So the unemployed will have to work harder. That's the way it's looking. It'll um, They'll take it back up on Tuesday, and I believe with some changes made, it'll have to go back to the Senate. But... Uh, the Senate did pass it with five a week. So let's, uh, I want to hear that. So let's grab some of that audio and let's listen to Marilyn uh, Avila uh, on that issue. Well, let's, we'll, we'll play that real quick and then we'll decide our headliner of the week. The speaker on the bill, Mr. Speaker. The lady from Wake has the floor to debate the bill. It, it's basically one question, and that is if it's an undue burden for somebody to make contact five days a week to find a job, is it going to be an undue burden five days a week to go to work? Thank you. And there it was. So, yeah, that was uh, interesting. That's not going to make it, though. I think the headliner of the week, uh, I have a soft spot for the uh, MLK, MLK speech. Um, that's a fascinating story. Um, if you didn't see it in the News and Observer this week, go back. There are two different stories, one before the recording uh, was first played, and then one after, where some of the people who were actually there uh, for the speech uh, were interviewed. Uh, just a really interesting story. 
uh, and sort of a time capsule, if you will. So as we head out on the Domecast, let's uh, let's listen to a, a portion of the Reverend Martin Luther King speaking in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, in 1962. And we thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. I have a dream. One day, right here in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will meet at the table of brotherhood, knowing that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of earth. I have a dream that one day men all over this nation will recognize all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I have a dream tonight. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 